and welcome to Thrift Shop Biography. This is the one about Andre Agassi. Thank you for listening. Hello. Hello. This week we've been reading. Now this is a new one to me because you found it in the thrift shop. And why did you choose a book about a sports person? Oh my God, I was going to get a new phone and they told me I had to wait 45 minutes so I nipped next door to the charity shop and the only one was Andre Agassi. And I was like, oh, I can't waste 45 minutes without reading. <laughs> so I sat there reading it. 45 minutes in, I am gripped like I can't remember being gripped. This is so exciting. It's unbelievably exciting. I was so surprised because we haven't done a sports person No, yet. And, we, and we're not sporty people, We're not sporty we? people. So, you know, when we're going into the shops and looking for these books, I kind of glance past the sports books. Me too, because there's tons of them. Yeah. Because everyone's into sport except us. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm really aware of Andre Agassi and I thought, okay, we've done a lot of Hollywood, we've done a lot of music and it was just something different. And I thought, okay, let's do it. And oh my God. Oh my God. It's an education because this is such a good book. I know. Who knew that I would be engrossed in a book about tennis? I I would never have said. I I think I persuaded you to read it because I said, look, he says he hates tennis. Yes. And you went, oh, right, great, because I hate tennis. Did you say <laughs> So if he hates tennis, it makes it accessible yeah. to non-sporty people. Yeah. It draws you in. Now, why does he hate tennis? This is fascinating. And that first chapter, so it starts in the present oh my day. God. Yeah. And he actually narrates a blow-by-blow account of a tennis match. Oh, my God, it's so exciting. I know. I have to say, I have watched tennis over the years, my mum's mad for tennis. She watches Wimbledon every year. That's pretty much the only one that ever got televised in Britain, isn't it, yeah. Wimbledon? So, of course, I've seen a lot of it because you do when it's somebody's excited in your house. Yeah, for sure. But, yeah, not since those days, back at living at home days, a long time ago. I've never watched it since. Have you? No, same. My sister had a massive crush on Agassi. Did she? Yeah, so I would just by like osmosis watch a couple yeah. of Wimbledon finals. And I have to look, I always say I don't like sport, but do you know what? Like football, tennis, those World Cups and the, the Grand yeah. Slam finals. I mean, they are exciting. Yeah, you get drawn in. You, yeah. you can't not. But it doesn't mean I, I'm a fan. No. But okay, this blow-by-blow account, you look like inside the players. You, you actually get to feel what it's like to be a player rather than just to watch it. He's yeah. transported you into his brain and yeah. his body. Yeah. Oh, my God, the body, the pain, the actual physical pain. You really feel it. You know, he's got this spinal injury and he's, he's reaching for this ball and he feels his back go and the yeah. agony of it. And then the other player's legs cramping and he knows they're cramping. So he'll work on that and try and make them stretch for the ball so he knows that will hurt that bit yeah. that's hurting. Yeah. And that bloke's doing the same back to him. They're like gladiators, yeah. fighting to the death. I think he says that. You just don't know what they're putting their bodies yeah. through. I never knew that. And that they would exploit that in each other. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a game of so many different intricate things other than just hitting the ball with <laughs> yeah. the racket, yeah. Yeah, which I thought that's what it was all about. <laughs> it's amazing to read it as a book, as mm-hmm. a story, and he takes us there, doesn't Yeah, he? there was so much more to this book. Shall we get it started? Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Andre Agassi. Yeah. Born in 1970 in Las Vegas, Nevada. That makes me feel so useless. Yeah, but he's more broken than us. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But we're more broke. (laughs) (laughs) So he has 
three older siblings. Yeah. All, it turns out, have kind of been coached by their terrible dad, their terrible monster of a dad. Well, the dad's a complex character. He had high hopes for his kids. That's an understatement. (laughs) (laughs) That's a massive understatement. But it sounds like he tried to make all of them tennis yeah. stars. Every single kid he had before they were born, his ambition was for them to be tennis stars. Now there's another dad like that and it's the dad of the Williams sisters, King Dick. Yes, King Richard. That bloke also said his kids are going to be tennis stars before they were born. Right. Because I've watched that film. Yes, yeah, so I saying I don't know anything about tennis. I watched that, but I tell you what, that's the outside looking in. That film, you're watching it as an audience. This book, you're inside his mm-hmm. brain and body. It's mm-hmm. totally different. That's why books rule. <laughs> yeah. It is, isn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah. Since we've been doing this podcast, I haven't like watched Netflix once. Yeah, well, we don't have time anymore, do we? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, his dad, right, was Emmanuel, when he changed his name to sort of Mike, a sort of Mike, <laughs> sort actually of Mike, <laughs> Agassane, he was a former Olympian boxer from Iran. You just think, I guess he's American, which he is, but I never knew his roots. His mum's American called Betty. Betty. Get more American than that. His dad's background is why he is like he is. And he had a really nasty mother, really bullied her son, to the point where if he'd done things wrong, she made him wear women's clothes to school where he got even more bullied, and that's why he learned to fight. So, you know, it's that classic thing, dad's bullied, so you just bully the next generation because it's all you know. I don't think that's a get-out clause no, for that it's man. Not, I think he's awful. It doesn't make it right, but it, it is an explanation. It's an explanation, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he did boxing for a run in the Olympics, yeah. and he went to two Olympics yep. as a bantamweight. And then after the Second World War... The British and Americans came into Iran and they brought with them tennis. Yeah. And he sort of stumbled upon them in almost like a clearing, it feels like. Yeah. And he was like, what is this wonderful, amazing game? And he's so enamoured with them and the game, he ends up picking up the balls for them and then becomes a ball boy. And he's just absolutely in love with tennis. And when he emigrates to America, this is what he wants to do. And when his kids are little... He builds them a tennis court, which little Andre is overseeing and helping. And he says afterwards, I've realised I helped build my own prison. Yeah, I know. It's one of those child star stories, isn't it, where he is he doesn't have a childhood. He is forced to work his ass off. Do you know what? I even think this is a human rights issue. Mm. It's like you're born, your dad's decided you're going to be a, the world-conquering tennis player before you're born. So literally... From the minute, well, he says even in his crib, his dad made him a mobile made out of tennis balls. And then he taped a ping pong bat to his hand. And so he would go around hitting stuff and his dad encouraged him to hit stuff. So even before he's like forming his thought, he's being encouraged to hold a bat and hit it. So this young boy has no choice in what he wants to do in his life. And in fact, when he does show interest in other things, like soccer, his dad goes and gets him and pulls him back and says, no, you're doing tennis. Yeah, I think that's because he injured his foot or something, and it's like, no, you can't do anything that will jeopardise. Yeah, and because he says how lonely tennis is. At least you're in a team yeah. in other sports. He says it's the loneliest sport there is, but I think that's not true. I think there's other lonely sports. Do you, such yeah. as? Snooker. Snooker. There's no such thing in America as snooker as a sport, I don't think. Is there think. not? 
Well, it's not known of, but in Britain, obviously, it's a great sport. It's. So I think I think it's weird that it's called a sport because people Same. smoke and drink pints of beer when well, they're they playing. Well, they used to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mind you, people used to smoke cigarettes half time in the football, didn't they? Yeah, the exactly. <laughs> this is what I realised through this book as well is that. Like any sport, people just get better and better and better at it. Because, like, okay, his dad built this machine that seemed like a monster. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. That, yeah, fired balls, so you have to return them, at 110 miles per mm. hour. And he had to hit 2,500 every day before he was allowed to do anything else. And so his dad calculated that in one year he'd hit a million balls or yeah. something. Yeah, he says his dad believes in maths numbers. He said a child who hits one million balls each year will be unbeatable. I think there's a certain truth in that. I do too. It's like the 10,000. There's a um, concept, isn't there, that if you want to become world class at something, you have to put in 10,000 hours. So the people who we regard as genius in any field have put in 10,000 hours of work. At least. So this is the same concept. It's just if you just do something enough. Yeah then you're going to become good at it. Yeah. Well, world class. True. I guess his siblings, he maybe hadn't built that tennis court or that machine when they were growing up. He got the money together a little bit later. But anyway, my point is, is that by the time he's an adult years later and playing Pete Sampras, his serve is coming in at 138 miles per hour or something. All sports, everyone beats that record and beats that record. And it all, almost becomes inhuman. Yeah. You can't understand how humans can ever better. Yeah, I know. It's like when people can run faster. It's just like, well, yeah, we've always been able to run since caveman times. Why all of a sudden can we now run for every year? It's, it's because like a of tenth training. of a second. Maybe Hussein Bolt has been forced to sprint since he was born. Trainers taped to his little feet. <laughs> Whistle blown and off he goes all day, every day. That's the thing. There's Just a level of training harder. from tiny ages. Yeah. Surely there's actual peak reached, you'd think. You'd think. But that means that in another 5,000 years, somebody's going to be able to run 100 metres in like three seconds. Yeah. But it's not possible. It has to cap. Level out at some point. Unless yeah. more superhumans are bred. Maybe they start interbreeding carefully. But you see, like mixing two champions, a Steffi Graf... And that Andre Agassi might make this super tennis champion. Right. Although they're definitely discouraging well, their Yeah, that to... doesn't work because they don't want their kids they to do They don't. It. But it would in theory. You it would carefully theory. breed superhumans yeah. to make super super. Oh, humans. they'll be clo- oh, that's it. They'll be <gasps> cloning sports stars in laboratories. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, where are we? Anyway, we did not learn this from that book. <laughs> Right, his dad is not just a disciplinarian and somebody dead set on getting their kid to be the number one tennis player in the world. He's actually really nasty with it as well. Mm. You can be, you know, positive reinforcements. You can be nurturing. You can be encouraging. Actually, his dad is none of those things. He's He does it through fear. Therefore, you have to ask, is it possible to make a world-class athlete through positive encouragement or do you literally have to scare them into it Mm. because if you're nice to them they're going to give up at some point because it's hard so they have to be scared of giving up but his dad just taunted him and belittled him and made him feel bad so much that like at the age of 10 it says something like i don't even need my dad to do it anymore because i say it to myself his voice is in his head his dad had got to him at such a young age those were the messages in his own head Mm. that's horrible Poor little boy. No. And what's uh, really lovely is the friendships he forms. He really forms 
massive bonds with other men yeah. that actually sort of heal his heart a bit. Yeah. And they're really lovely, aren't they? His his coaches and his trainers and stuff, there are a number of father figures in this yeah. book. All of them are much nicer than his So dad. much. They're nice people. Yeah. That's probably why he's still here, because the people he's met. And this first one was this kid called Perry. And they're oh, only yeah. kids at this yeah. point. Anyway, it's a bit of a journey to get to be friends, but he's finally realises, oh, I know. He says they're in like a fast food place, and this kid called Perry says to the bloke who works there, is this place open 24 hours? Yes. Is it open seven days a week? Yes. Is it open every single day of the year? Yes. So why are there locks on the door? <laughs> and this just blows Agassiz's mind, and he's like, he sees things no one else sees. He thinks like me. Because he said he can't forget anything. He's got a real hyperactive brain. You'd have to have the balls coming at you that fast. You've got to think fast. <laughs> but from that moment on, which is a lovely moment to realise this is your best friend, they really bond. And he's also got a domineering dad. And his dad's actually minted rich, which he doesn't yeah. find out for ages. Yeah, yeah. He really needs a friend. And Perry plays tennis as well, but... It, in no way at the same level. But he's got someone he can really talk to. And his brother as well. He shares a room with his brother who spends all Philly. the... Philly. Yeah, yeah. He spends all his time upside down trying to grow his hair back. When oh, they're going to bed, he spends yeah. hours upside down. Hair loss is a hair. theme. Yeah. I wonder if that's why his dad is so angry. Because his dad's angry about something. His dad obviously has premature hair loss too. Yeah. Well, that and having to wear girls' clothes to school. Because <laughs> your mum's a bitch. Every solid friend he makes are with him all of his life. Yeah. It's lovely. His brother's really, really nice. Really well, the brother supportive. is lovely, but I tell you what, the relationship between the dad and the brother, because obviously Philly is older than Andre, and obviously his dad at some point wanted Philly to be the number one tennis player in the world, and it didn't quite work out. I kind of get that Andre's dad tried to train Philly and both of his sisters into tennis players. Didn't quite work out with all three of them. So Andre is like the last chance saloon, Definitely. which is why he really treats him so hard mm. because it's his last chance of having a kid. Yeah, and poor Philly them. has got this real sense of failure about himself. Oh my God, but is... then there's that bit where Philly, when they're 12 or 13 and Philly is saying in front of the dad, oh, I'll just become a robot then, I'll just do whatever you tell me, I'll keep my mouth shut. And his dad goes, Jesus Christ, he's finally got it. Yeah. And what an asshole yeah. to say that to your young teenage son. And mind you, it's probably nothing compared to what he'd done to him <laughs> Exactly. But anyway, at least he's got these people. So he gets sent. He's doing junior tournaments by the time he's 12. He actually goes to Australia to do some. But then the parents find that they see it on the programme on telly. There's a place called the Bolletieri. Yeah. Bolletieri Academy. Bolletieri. Yeah. Same to you. <laughs> <laughs> Academy in Florida, which is like a boot camp. He also says it's like prison. It's a tennis prison, basically. And they're all in bunk beds and, it, and they wake up at this time, do this exercise. They have to get on a bus and get trooped out to some school, do four hours of schooling or whatever, get trooped back and then play tennis all afternoon into the night. They get one hour of their own time and it's brutal. He's scared. It's miserable, basically, isn't it? It's interesting, I thought, that his dad, literally every waking hour, has trained Andre for like, 10 years and then at some point his dad realized he can't take him any further and so he finds a Boletari 
Academy, and he sends him there. And Andre actually says, because he hates his dad. I mean, he hates tennis. Yeah. But he says when he went to the Bolletieri Academy, he said he actually missed his dad. Yeah. And he felt like it was a betrayal that he was being sent away. That poor little boy, honestly, he's so... That's that syndrome thing. Stockholm syndrome. That's the one. (laughs) (laughs) Can you have Stockholm syndrome from your own parent? Yeah, I guess you can. Whoever's holding you captive, basically. Yeah, right. And he had a mum, by the way. His mum was perfectly nice, but she just let it all... She liked doing jigsaw puzzles. Yeah, and he actually did realise years later when her dad was ill that she was a lot stronger than he thought and he actually suddenly got to know her. Yeah. But she was no help to him when he was a kid. Gosh, Andre saw when Andre was like eight, he saw his dad beat up a trucker because there was some road rage and he just knocked him out and left him in the road. Oh, knocked him absolutely out cold. Well, he's a bloody boxer, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, left him in the road where he could have been run over. Yeah. And he says he often thinks because as they pulled away he looked back and just saw this trucker lying in the road and it stays with him every time he thinks of crossing his dad he pitches that trucker and goes I can't but it also makes him really really nervous when he's out and about and with other tennis people and other tennis dads if his dad like starts talking to someone and Andre can see maybe escalating into a fight it's terrifying for like a 10 year old to be around a person like that Mm. I mean, luckily, he gets free of him. Okay, they could only afford to send him to this place for three months because yeah. it cost loads. Yeah. But during the, his time there, the bloke who ran it, Nick, um, realised that he was really, really talented and said he can stay there for free. So he was gutted. <laughs> yeah, right, because he'd only thought it was he was going to be there yeah. for a short spell. But yeah, Nick Bollieteri said to Andre's dad, your boy has more talent than anybody I've seen come through this academy. That's right, Ebba, and I'm going to take him to the top. Yeah. So let's also say then, little Andre yeah. Agassi is a bloody good little tennis player. If Nick Bolliateri, who runs a tennis academy, it's like 200 kids at this boot camp. If he said that's the best kid who's ever come through this tennis academy, wow. Yeah, that's because Pete Sampras... All those macro, they never went through that tennis game. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean he's the best one. No, it doesn't mean he's the best one he's the in best the world. One there. But he's. But it's actually amazing how many people, it, when he's an adult, he's like, I, I'm up against so and so, who was actually my bunk mate yeah. at the academy. Loads of times he runs mm-hmm. up against the people who were there. So it was packed full of talent. All right, so then there's this incident. He manages to wangle. Oh, by the way, he's already been rebelling because he hates his place. He's had his ears pierced. He's had a mohawk he's trying to express himself because he feels like such a prisoner the only thing he's got is his body and his clothes to actually be an individual to find out who he is he doesn't know who he is so he starts becoming a bit of a punk and he's kind of lawless he kind of is challenging everyone to chuck him out he doesn't want it yeah he sort of drops a hint with this trainer that oh this bloke's a real threat back home in vegas great tennis player perry so he sort of wangles it that they fly him out to be in this tournament just so he can get to <laughs> hang out with him. And uh, this bloke Nick realises early on that it was a trick because this Perry's not great at tennis. <laughs> but he gets to hang out with him and they go to the fair one day and they try and win this giant panda and this throwing the hoops and it's just all rigged against them. So they work out, get that woman talking over there and Perry runs around and just places the hoops over and runs back and the woman kind of knows, but she can't prove it. <laughs> so they get this giant panda. It has to ride back on the bus with them. And then on the bus, Nick's little girl falls in love with this panda and sends a message 
my little girl wants a panda. And so he's like, this is this is a bargaining tool. So he breaks into the office at night and leaves the panda arse up on Nick's chair. Nick calls him in the office. Right, firstly, you broke into my office. I don't even know how you got in there. I think he's had the keys copied. <laughs> he's a proper little tearaway, isn't he? And then secondly... You leave this fucking panda arse at his <laughs> What am I going to do with you? And he says, okay, I don't want to go to school anymore. I want to be put in tournaments as wildcards. I need to be promoted. I need something to happen. I'm going mad. And he says, all right. Well, he doesn't say it, but it all starts happening. Yeah. And he gets out of school, and which means he can concentrate on his game because he hates school, doesn't want to learn. Mm-hmm. He actually wants to just play tennis, even though he hates it. He needs to be good at it. He wants to win. And that's when it all started happening. And so then when he's on the summer break from the academy, he says to his dad he wants to start playing semi-professional tournaments because he's still only like 14 at this point. So he goes to the tournaments where anybody can enter and plays and he's doing really well. And he's ranked number 610 in the world. Beside himself about this fact. <laughs> and years later, when his brother phones to tell him he's number one, he feels nothing. Mm. Strange. But he says, like, within the next year, he's beating grown men and he's just really accelerating through the ranks quite quickly. So he is a particularly good tennis player, even in the world of semi professional tennis. If at the age of 14, 15, he's beating grown men. He's a talent to look out for, isn't he? certainly he? is. <laughs> By the way, Philly, Andre's older brother, warns Andre not to take the pills that his dad gives him. Oh, God, I forgot about that. And then Andre says, Dad has given me Exedrin, which is a caffeine pill. And Philly says, if he gives you another type of pill, play really badly. And so his dad does give him. I think Andre's 10 or 11 at You're this right. point. And he gives him a pill and Andre pretends to play badly. And then he says that he's got a bad stomach. That was speed. Yeah. He his, says afterwards, oh, I don't know what happened. I felt really dizzy and weird. And his dad goes, all right, well, I won't try that again. Yeah. He says his dad Basically. looked really guilty. Yeah. So fuck this yeah. dad. He actually would have doped him up. Wow. That would have absolutely ruined his life. Yeah. He probably would never have got anywhere, actually. Well, do you look, Philly obviously was Andre a few years before and yeah. it didn't work out. No. So it's probably because his dad yeah. is giving yeah. him speed and making him... Wow. So then in 1986, he's 16, and they start playing more tournaments around Florida. And then he makes it to the final of the Masters, which means even if he loses, he's entitled to the finalist check, which is $1,100. But if he accepts it, that means he's turned professional and he hates tennis. Yeah. And he doesn't know if he wants <laughs> to have this miserable life of being a professional tennis player, but it's $1,100. So he deliberates about it, but he takes the money. And then, because now he's professional, he gets approached by Nike because they want him, they want to sponsor him. He doesn't realize that all he has to do is just wear Nike kit on court. And for that, they're going to pay him $20,000. They want to sponsor him for two years. Plus, give him all the clothes. Give him all the clothes. Yeah. He says, What, 20000 for both years? He says, No, for each year. 
So at the age of 16, he's just turned professional and he's getting $20,000 a year uh, to fact, wear Nike clothes. I think his brother says we should ask for more. So they ask for more and he says, OK, we'll give you 25 in the second right. year. Yeah. And they're like, right, OK, cool, we'll take that deal. <laughs> as soon as they drive away, they're like, woohoo, let's go for a steak. <laughs> but what's interesting about that, they were very excited about having that much money. I mean, they'd never seen that much money. But then he says, I'm broke. And the reason being, they travel around so much to tournaments and he doesn't just go on his own he has his brother and his dad so it quite quickly oh, he goes burns on, through it yeah yeah on air just fares fl- flights and, and hotels yeah. yeah you can see how it would happen and if you're not winning you're not getting any more coming in yeah in fact it's amazing he got that money because he actually needed it to make it to all those places but he says his first tournament as a pro is in new york and he reaches the final but loses but you see if he'd have won that he'd have got a hundred thousand yeah. dollars so he's he's upped yeah. his game yeah, right. <laughs> into the professional yeah. league, which means, okay, it costs a lot of money to be a professional tennis player, but if you win, then you're getting into mega bucks. That's right. And he's still only 16. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? And around this time, he smashes a return of John McEnroe's, who misses it, but when he's interviewed afterwards, he went, that was so fast, I didn't even see it, and that made the headlines. Yeah. And everyone started having heard of this man then. Really yeah. Got him noticed. So he kind of got a seal of approval by John McEnroe, who at that point, mid-80s, is probably the most famous tennis player I'd on say the planet. So. so that then pricks up people's interest in him and the press and stuff. Who is this young kid who looks like he's going to be the next big tennis Yeah, but they love to hate him. Yeah, they do. Forever. Only, I think, right up until he won Wimbledon, they still love to hate him. Well, he doesn't conform like at the Bolletieri Academy. He had a mohawk and, oh, he would play in denim shorts. Yeah, but they were Nike. They were Nike shorts. Nike shorts. And they were a choice of uniform. It's not like he went and customised his own shorts. Yeah. And everyone criticised him like you're not respecting the game. It's just that weird thing. When the press decides they don't like you, you can't do anything right. You know, just wearing denim shorts is the worst thing that's ever happened to tennis. But then he looks around the courts when he goes in and everyone's starting to dress like him and look like him and wear what he wears and they're selling merch at the stands of becomes a bit of a pop star of tennis doesn't he for sure I guess he's a bit of a breath of fresh air because of his attitude he's good looking he's good looking too that helped the hair was very much of the time the mohawk and he was putting bleached bits in it and as we know that was a hair piece I'm so shocked about this hair loss. He lost his hair so early on, didn't he? Yeah, do you know what? I don't don't think that that should be underplayed, actually, because I think that's a real problem for any young man. Yeah, like you say, he's even losing his hair when he's a teenager. Mm. That's such a big thing to deal with. I think unless it happens to you, you don't realise how much of a disability that can be. And then not to your confidence. I've really thought about it because as a woman, you don't have to worry about it. And I thought, oh my God, if women had to lose their hair, I'd be absolutely horrified. And that's what a lot of men are feeling as well. Especially when you're that age. You don't expect to lose your hair at the age of 20. No. So he gets a hairpiece, him and his brother. But then you realise at the point when he eventually shaves all of his hair off, what an actual burden that was on him. It really is definitely weighs on him. And anything that weighs on you is inhibiting your game. Just the worry. This is another thing. It'll fall off. Just to worry. You're so physical in a game. Yeah. And you're wearing Sweating. a headpiece. Yeah. But also, he has like loads and loads of hair. Like, if you were losing your hair and needed a headpiece, why wouldn't you make the whole thing just a little bit smaller? <laughs> he has really big hair. Well, I guess it's the 1980s. It's the 80s. 
But yeah, you'd never have known. No never way. have known. Poor boy. Honestly, I felt so bad for him at so many points during this yeah. book. Anyway, it never fell off. That's the amazing thing. It didn't, know, And yeah. nobody did know about it. And everyone was shocked when he shaved his hair off. Yeah, and then when he had the shower and he said his hairpiece started to disintegrate just before a match, yeah. he goes to Philly and he says, oh, my God, the hairpiece is coming off. So they rearrange it. And Andre says to Philly, does it look all right? He goes, yeah, it looks right. He goes, just as long as you don't move too much. <laughs> just where he's going to play a game. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And then right. when he's on his third date with Brooke Shields some years later, the big thing that he has to come out to her before they get too close is to tell her. It's like he really builds it up, this yeah. big thing. I've got to tell you. This, I've got to be honest. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I've got to come out. I've got a hairpiece. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's how much of a big deal oh, it is. Oh, it is a big deal. Yeah. It really is. And she's the one that says to him, shave it off. Yeah. She shave actually, first of all, off. said, I thought you might have. Bloody hell. Yeah. That's the best thing she ever did for him was that and one And she thing. just said all of it, short as short can yeah. be, just get the whole lot yeah, of shape. He looks so good with yeah. He's got a lovely face. Yeah. Didn't have to worry. <laughs> so just a couple of years ago, he was ranked 610. Right. And by the age of 16, he's already shot up into the top 100. And so what happens now over the next couple of years is just intense period of playing tennis professionally and he's shooting right up in the rankings. Oh, he's got a thing about Wimbledon. He goes in 1987 and plays it, but he doesn't like it it's so much. It's the grass. He's never played on grass before. There's mm-hmm. clay courts and some other type of courts. <laughs> but he's never played grass. They don't have it in America, it seems. Yeah, they have no grass in America. No, they don't have grass. And so the ball. <laughs> goes all over the shop in a different manner it's nuts isn't it there's so many elements oh, so many elements so you, what now you've got a train on grass clay and yeah. whatever else <sighs> even like the strings on your oh, racket oh there's loads and, about the strings yeah and... who knew and then he gets this different racket and oh my god there's so much stuff <laughs> he has a crisis of confidence one because he has a spate of losing and so he just completely loses it. He empties all of his racket. He goes down to an oh, area yeah, where the homeless all of people the are. Rackets to the homeless. And, and his rackets, which are worth thousands of dollars. Useless to he, them. He gives them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so imagine loads of homeless people playing tennis with I mean, really you know, rackets. So he's decided he's broken at like the everything that's happened, all his training. He's only about 18. He says, that's it. I'm not playing tennis anymore. And him and Philly are there and somebody from North Carolina phones from a tournament saying that somebody's pulled out of the tournament. And does Agassi want to go and take the place? But he's already decided that he's not going to play tennis anymore. But him and Philly realise they have no money. So what are they going to do for money? And the tennis tournament says they'll guarantee him $2,000 if he goes. And then Philly agrees, well, it would be nice if we're going to walk away from tennis. We need a bit of cash. So let's go and play that tournament. Andre says, okay, one last tournament. He does really well there, which kind of gets things going again. <laughs> He has to get some new rackets. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the next thing he does is he realises he needs strength. He hasn't worked on that enough. So he gets an ex-army trainer, Lenny, who makes him run up and down the hill in Snake. Las Vegas. And then one time they go up there and there's this Native American who's up there killing rattlesnakes. He said he kills about 10 a day. And he's, you've been running up and down this hill and you haven't been bitten yet. The odds are against that. And he's like, I could have spat in his trainer's face. I was so angry. When he finally meets this bloke, Gil, who is 
the father that almost the love of his life yeah, really yeah absolute male bonding total love between these two men he's built like a bleak shit hoose isn't he? he's like massive chest size of this man he hugs you you like feel little when he finally meets him he's with the trainer and they decide to use the university of nevada's equipment so they go to the university and he blokes gill says mm-hmm. yeah you can use it and realizes he's not training properly and then they end up having a big chat in the car until the dawn and they really bond and he's like i'll train you i'll take you on in my spare time and eventually he says can you be with me all the time i I need you because he's so wise about not just training but about your mental strength food when to eat what to eat he ends up building his own gym in his house that actually trains muscles but avoids the muscles that he's got problems with, like the certain bits of the back. So he yes. actually customises this gym. Yes. It's perfect for him. It's the best thing could have ever happened. Yeah. To actually win, you don't just need skill, blah, blah, blah. You need the right people on your team, clearly. And this bloke is also a family man, so he's sleeping at his house a lot, eating with the family, yeah. just having a lovely life. Yeah, it's kind of like the ideal version of his dad yeah it's kind of like somebody who can bring out the best of him and make him the best tennis player in the world but with kindness yeah so you don't need to be an asshole i don't know do you have to in the early stages so that when you find well maybe because he might not have got that far and then at this time his brother says come to church with me and he goes and this pastor is really inspiring jp and he ends up going to his house and saying, please, will you talk to me? Can we have some one-on-one time? He says, I can't do that, but I can be your friend. And they end up being really great friends. And that sorts out his mental health. So he's got a physical trainer now and father figure. He's got a mental trainer. He's got Perry, who comes with him a lot of time, and his brother. He's really got his gang yeah, together. Yeah, he has. And I think that's going back to when he says that tennis isn't a team sport, so it's very lonely. Mm. Um, So he does have to seek out friends in other places. And he does actually get a really nice friendship yeah. with these men. It's amazing how I feel like he's instinctively knew what he needed. He instinctively put together his winning team. I also get as well that with other people who play tennis the people he's meeting in the dressing rooms and stuff there's just such an undeniable rivalry it's like you can respect each other but he never really forges friendships with any of them no and that's a shame really because he does say sometimes when he's playing with people especially when he was a young boy the person he'd be playing against he'd say god he plays exactly the same as me i bet his dad is the same as my dad yeah it's such a shame that they couldn't be friends you know Mm. but um but they couldn't he took pete sampras to broadway to see (laughs) brooke shields in greece (laughs) he sat there totally uncomfortable hating it anyway let's discuss the women in his life shall we (laughs) well there's only really been two three Because Wendy came first. Oh, Wendy. She seemed nice. She seems very nice, yes. <laughs> they were kids together. They were ball people. <laughs> <laughs> and they met up again years later. And they were together two years, but she was like, oh, I don't know who I am. I've got to find myself. We shouldn't commit too much. And then they got famous in that time, and they were hanging out with Kevin Costner's kids on a yacht, as mm-hmm. you do, and he thought, oh, we could have children, this could be... And he got really happy for a little bit, and then she suddenly left him. 
Yeah. She had to go and find herself, and it really broke him. And these things relate to tennis because they correspond. When Wendy broke him, he was terrible at tennis and was losing all the time. Then he was so down, his friend said, let's set you up with this perfect woman. This woman is perfect for you, and it was Brooke Shields. They really set yeah, him up. Do you know who the friend was? This no. actually sounds like... It wasn't he... Barbara Streisand, was it? No. Oh. oh, but that's weird. That's another one of his women. Let's talk about Barbara Streisand for a minute. Yeah, let's talk about that. Was that just a friendship? He says they... it was a very close friendship, but... Hmm, they were shagging, right? I think they were. Yeah. She's a lot older than him, and it was very controversial. She was coming to all his shows and stuff. Was she married shows. at the time? I mean, you know, games. Was she, was she married at the time? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know. It was in I don't the know anything public about domain her. a lot. Yeah, you're right. She shows up at the matches. He absolutely says they had a very, very close friendship. Yeah. They were shagging. Oh, I reckon. Before yeah, so then so Brooke Shields. Oh, who no, set who them introduced? Up? Who set them up? <laughs> so this does make me think that Andre Agassi must have the most boring celebrity life because <laughs> the wife of Kenny G. Oh, yes. Who Agassi met through Michael Bolton. That's so true. <laughs> He does say when he had his earrings and his mullet and his denim shorts, everyone thought he was really rock and roll. And he was actually listening to Kenny G, Michael Ball and Barbara <laughs> Streisand, who all became his friends. Yeah. That's his music. So you can't always judge a music by the cover. <laughs> <laughs> so Kenny G's wife set up a blind date for him and he didn't really it want to It wasn't a blind date, was it? She gave him her number and they were faxing for ages. And then phone calls. They they got to know each other quite a lot before this they actually went on a date. Facts, anything is a sign of the times. Because Matthew Perry, yeah. when he first got Julia Roberts on his radar, yeah, they, were, they faxing. were faxing each other. And not even talking about Phil Collins and his fax history. Oh, yes. So faxing was a very legitimate form of communication. Facts of life. <laughs> At the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. Yeah. And now here is Andre Agassi faxing Brooke Shields. Yes. Yeah, it just seems like a really slow way to get to know someone. Yeah, it certainly does. But anyway, they had really good times, especially early on. They were really happy together. They were really all loved up. And eventually it drifted because he's playing tennis the whole time. So all of the ups and downs of that, all the emotional ups and downs, the hard work, all of that. And she's, yeah, she's trying to be an actress. And, and then, you know, these are where the cracks show because... Her friends are all actors. He's bored of always being around actors. He's not that social. His social life is really Gil and that family. Yeah. You know, it's, it's his close people. Yeah, he's not interested in he's celebrity, not. really. And in fact, there is a quote in the book, which um I think is important because we read a lot about celebrity. It's interesting that this is in a sports person's yeah. book. But he says that he found celebrity surreal and then perfectly normal. And he said he was struck at how fast it went from surreal to completely mundane. He says, I marvel at how unexciting it is to be famous, how mundane famous people are. They're confused, uncertain, insecure and often hate what they do. It's something we always hear, but we never believe it until we see it for ourselves. And do you know what? That's exactly what Matthew Perry said. Yeah. And that's exactly what Jim Carrey says. Yeah. It's interesting. We're hearing it more and more because everybody has this idea that being famous is the holy ground. It's going to answer all of your problems. Yeah. Actually, it just doesn't. It's true. It's just something else to worry about. Mm. And quite often people who are massively famous want to go back to being completely unfamous. Yeah. Of course, he's just focused on tennis, but yeah. by accident he's become famous. Yeah. Yeah, he bloody hell, the story of him going to see friends when she... Well... She, oh, no, it's awful. He. This is... 
yeah. a bad mark on his character here. Yeah. It's really bad behaviour. Because he says, all right, him and Brooke Shields get on. But I kind of just read, obviously, he's way past that relationship as he's writing this book. So he perhaps isn't looking at it completely favorably. Whereas at the time, he was completely into her. But he, there are little slight digs saying, you know, she's a narcissist and it's all about her and stuff. And then you think, when she gets that part in Friends, she says it's a Super Bowl episode, 50 million people. Oh, yeah. are at that point in her career, that's fucking that's amazing. the turnaround moment. And she also thinks, she says, if it goes well, maybe they'd keep me on. Yeah. She said... It's really important. To, it's that important to yeah. me that it goes And well. she said to Andre, this is my version of the US Open. Yeah. And he says, I can't believe she made a tennis reference. If anything, was going to lose my interest. I know. He was being an arsehole at this yeah, point. There's like no doubt about arsehole. it. Yeah, a real arsehole. And he says... I told her I was happy because she wanted to know that I was happy. It's like, why weren't you happy? Yeah, I know. That your yeah. girlfriend had got this amazing She's ch- He's job. lost interest in her, let's face yeah. it. Yeah. He actually has. He's so derogatory in this whole thing. He's like, I went on the set, there's these people, I'm assuming they were the friends, but I've never even seen yeah. it. Oh, he's just so dismissive of the whole thing. Maybe he's jealous. Maybe he doesn't want... Maybe, subconsciously, he just wants a wife that will have kids and he can see that if she succeeds that those dreams won't happen maybe subconsciously because that can happen yeah so she she has this scene with joey and she's licks his hand do you know it yeah i've seen it oh really she's a stalker she's totally nuts and then they're like right do it again she's really nervous it's there to support he's on the front rows they, they do it again and he's like oh my god i've got to watch this again my girlfriend licking some bloke's hand it's like, it's not what's happening here. <laughs> and then this time she does it even more and actually puts his whole hand in her mouth. It sounds hilarious. And he gets up and walks out. Yeah. He's on the front row in the middle of the filming. Fuck's sake, that's absolutely bang out of order. Yeah. Bang out of order. And he's so mad and he marches out, gets in his Corvette or whatever. He's a boy racer and, and drives and then he keeps this, fuck it, I'll keep going to Vegas. I just want to be in my bed, gets home. She rings him or something and she has a massive go at him. Says, how yeah. dare you do that to me? Yeah, It was my big she... moment. Everyone was congratulating me. I couldn't enjoy it because you weren't there. I totally get that feeling. Well, she was humiliated. She's, he smashed that out of her and made it a miserable time yeah. for her. Plus... Then he's made the whole thing awkward and yeah. she doesn't get invited back and he's jeopardised her. That is totally shit. She has rightly has a go at him yeah. and then he smashes up every single yeah. tournament thing he's ever got. He loses the smashes plot. Smashes it up, yeah. I think, you know what, it wasn't just about That's the what Friends I mean. episode. I think it was his whole lifetime of his dad forcing him into tennis and all those pressures. It was always going to come out at some point. Yeah. And Brooke Shields sucking Matt LeBlanc's fingers was the thing yeah. that completely... That was it. But also, I really... That's one of those things where I often realise things as we talk for the first time. It suddenly does occur to me that he could see her possibly becoming more successful than, you know, going. Like, her focus needed to be on him. You know, all of his team, those people have given up their lives for him. Gil gave up his job at the university to come everywhere with him. Mm-hmm. He needed those people around him to be there for him. He actually wants kids. That's like her having an affair, but the affair she's having is with her job and her career. On a subconscious oh. level... I totally get that, but also we find this a lot in these books. People choose the wrong partners if that's what you're... Oh, she wants the wrong you want in a partner, yeah. don't go out with Brooke Shields. No, that's absolutely she's an, right. A really and famous have. actress. And they did split up eventually. Yeah. 
Not before they got married. Oh, they bloody... Yeah, let's throw that in there. <laughs> it's just a mistake. Everything... You know, actually, from that point on, it's all a mistake. He thinks the next thing to do is to propose. He doesn't mean it. He doesn't want to. He's a miserable bastard on holidays. He's not even talking. He's yeah. just an asshole, really. And when they eventually split up after they've got married, he's just walking it through. He's acting yeah. the part, and so she... She ends it, and straight away he's pursuing Steffi Graf, who he's always had a crush on his whole life. Well, you know, we completely skipped past him winning Wimbledon for the first Yes, time. oh, because we're doing a so... little chapter on his, the women of his life. Oh, OK. Life. You so know, like you wanna... a little section of the women. OK. Because this is his love life, and we can just yeah. wrap it up. Instead sure. of being chronological, yeah, yeah, yeah. he then goes out with Steffi Graf, who he wins over with quite a bit of work, and you know that that's the right person for him. That's somebody who gets well, tennis, yeah. gets all the pressures. She actually gets the game so they can play together, which is lovely. The book ends with them having a knock-around game in, in their local tennis court, which the girl who's going, that's $2, please, nearly falls off her chair when she sees them and a crowd <laughs> gathers. And, and they're just having a knock-around and, and then she wants to have kids and she's given up tennis. Her life is dedicated to family. She supports all of his goals. She also had the same goals of building a school for children, that's the same sort of thing. They're the right people for each other. Yeah, they are, because she had a similar life. Yeah, and yeah. I googled Brooke Shields, and she got together pretty soon after they split up with a TV executive or producer or something. They had children together. Those were the right people for right. each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. they shouldn't have been together. It was Flipping wrong. Kenny G's wife, <laughs> yeah. introducing them. Yeah. Let's blame her. Yeah. So... For the first time, because he's wooing Steph, we've completely glossed over their courtship. Yeah, we have. So <laughs> he's really trying to woo her, Steffi. Yeah. She has a boyfriend when they meet, so she not in. Well, she probably is interested, but she can't do anything about it because she's in the public eye. And Andre's like, "Come and see me play," and she's like, "Well, I can't. I have a boyfriend." Yeah. Anyway, so he chases her for a couple of years. Eventually, they get a practice match together, and she's still really cool. And then eventually, anyway, he does manage to get her out to dinner. And he says for the first time, they actually talk about tennis. And when he tells her that he hates it, she turned to him and says, of course, doesn't everyone? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That tells me that all of those professional tennis players hate yeah, tennis. Yeah, that's the first one he ever took to dinner. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> because they've all been made to do it since the day they yeah, were born. They I'm have to have you, to have got to that level. It's a human rights issue. Yeah. They've all been forced into it. Yeah, you're it. right. So she's the women's number one. Yeah. We have not said that in case anyone doesn't know. She was the women's number one. And when she retired, just after they got together, she retired. She was still number one. Was she still winning? I think she just won Wimbledon and then retired. Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf, at least at the time this book was published, they were the only tennis players in history to have won the four Grand Slam titles and a gold medal at the Olympics. It's amazing. Yeah. So, and now they're together. Yeah. So they really do have a they similar really lived experience. Yeah. yeah. And then they had beautiful kids. Kids are yeah. gorgeous. Who are never going to play tennis. And they hope. <laughs> Got to keep an eye Actually, on that. that's an interesting fact because their kids will look up to them and might want to play tennis. Yeah, that's going to present them with a dilemma. Well, then, it, oh god, no, because it will be too late once the yes, kids it'll have realised. Once the kids have realised they want to play tennis yeah. at the age of three, it's too late. It's too to late be because the one. you didn't have a bat strapped to your baby hand. <laughs> Bloody hell! Oh yeah. my god. Yeah, so that all happened. That's the love life, right? Meanwhile, 
Uh, meanwhile, back in 1992, <laughs> he won his first Wimbledon. Yeah, yeah, that was his first big win of anything. He won loads of tennis. He, he basically won loads of tennis. Yeah, he firstly won Wimbledon and he was absolutely amazed by how happy he was because he didn't think he cared. He was really teared up. And then he phoned his dad and his dad went, well, you should never have let that one bit go. And he was like, really? And then he realised his dad wasn't speaking and he's like, what is wrong with my dad? And then he realised his dad was crying. It's like, that's as much as he ever got to a pat on the back, isn't it? As mm-hmm. near as he got. Yeah, he wins Wimbledon and then he does start to win. It's amazing, when he goes up with Brooke Shields, he gets that last missing piece and he starts winning a lot of stuff. As the relationship disintegrates, he starts losing. When she leaves him, he starts losing. Then his assistant gets him onto crystal meth and he, he takes about six months off and he's off his bloody face. When he talks about drugs in this book, he's not very forthcoming about them. He mentions them. Mm. I wondered whether he was doing more than what he says. Maybe. The first time he does it, he says he felt this amazing feeling of not caring about anything. And he absolutely loved it. It's the happiest he's ever been. And then he cleaned the house from top to bottom (laughs) and tidied everything. (laughs) And then he does talk about getting onto a spiral and taking a lot of time out. After Wimbledon, Nick leaves his trainer. He says he wants time to move on. So he feels a bit dumped at that that exact point. Brooks dumped him and Nick dumps him. And his brother says, look, you need a new trainer. You need a tennis player who actually can really guide you. And this bloke, Brad Gilbert, he says was a bit of a dodgy player. He'd do trick shots and all that, but he was good. And he's 32. He's about to retire. So they set up a meeting with him. He says, right, I want you to tell me what's wrong with my game. And he goes, really? Do you really want me to? Well, okay, this is what's wrong. You're doing this, you're doing that. Every single shot you're trying to make perfect. You're going for every single one. You don't have to make every shot perfect. You should let some go. Don't worry if that one wasn't perfect. But then nail him in that one and he basically breaks down his game for about half an hour. And he sat there absolutely gobsmacked because obviously no one's ever talked to him like this. But he agrees on every point. And he went, this is our man. And he almost has to reset him, like stop being perfect, stop being perfect. And he has to rethink. So actually for a while he's losing because he's trying to retrain his game. And eventually it starts working for him again. And then he has a really good streak of winning. So it's all up and down, isn't it? It's like yeah. That really gets him up for a while. Yes, yeah, so they totally rebuild him and he kind of gets a complete second wind on his career. Yeah, yeah, he does. And that's after Wimbledon. Then he wins the Australian Open. He actually beats Pete Sampras for once. Oh, my God, him and Pete face. So oh, no, no, he's so often up against him. He wins the Canadian Open. He wins the US Open. He was the first unseeded player since 1966 to win the US Open since Frank Shields won Who it. Who was? Brooke's granddad. Yeah, amazing. I didn't even huh? know she had tennis in her <laughs> family. No. I didn't either. And it wasn't mentioned at all. So she actually did know tennis. Yeah, but she, she wasn't did. the most unlikely actress. No. To... The fact he was unseeded shows how much his career tanked in yeah. the meantime to come back and be unseeded yeah. and win the tournament. But he is skipping a lot of tournaments. Some more committed tennis players would never skip Wimbledon. No. And he's he skipping a lot, it a lot. And then went to really sort of lower places, ordinary games, yeah. played more ordinary people to practice building up his new game. Yeah. Yeah, he kind of broke it to make it, sort of. Yeah. yeah. Really interesting. He'd do whatever it takes. And he really believed in this bloke, Brad. And when he won one of these tournaments, I can't remember which one, and he looked and he saw Brad's just pure joy at his win, he knew he was really on his side. Uh-huh. It was really cool. And then, like in the mid-90s, he goes off to play the Olympics. Yeah. 
and he wins and yeah. he gets a gold medal and he says it's like one of the proudest moments of his life. Yeah. Played I didn't for... know they played tennis in the Olympics. Well, I didn't either. Yeah. <laughs> Why would we know? Why would that? we don't know? Oh, anything? we know so much about sport. <laughs> <laughs> what are the Olympics? Do they What's play tennis? all the sports in the Olympics? I don't, well, I don't know. know. <laughs> I don't think they play snooker in the Olympics. They don't. Well, snooker's not a sport. Stop it. <laughs> so he has this kind of. I mean, do we call it a comeback? I guess we do, because he it kind is. of went off and then came back. And he's old now in tennis terms. Yeah. He actually says he's now playing people who weren't even born, born. when he first started playing professionally. Yep. But so the press are really on to him because people are retiring. Steffi Graf is retiring and his contemporaries are all retiring. But Agassi isn't. He keeps going forward, even though his body is telling him to stop. It sounds so painful. Oh, God, he's had wrist problems. He's had operations. Oh, But he's still doing things like winning the Italian Open, which he's never won before. So he's still at the top of his game. He's the oldest player in 31 years to win a slam and on his 33rd birthday he's the oldest player to ever be ranked number one amazing that is amazing Mm. when you think about how fit all of these young 18 year olds are do you know what i think if you don't play professional tennis i actually don't think you know how painful it is it's just like if you've got a ball coming at you at 130 miles an hour and then you have to return that just the shock on your arm and your hand I mean, if that came towards me and I put a tennis racket out, it probably would break my arm. It probably would. (laughs) Oh, I like what he says about Boris Becker. He says that he'd worked out Becker's trick. No, it's like a tick. Because they often try and trick each other with where they're going to aim the serve. Because you can't return it unless you kind of know or guess which way it's going. But he, at the very last minute when he chucks the ball in the air, his tongue points. That's amazing. Towards the direction he's actually going to do it in. And he's sussed that out. Yeah. And it works. He, he can preempt it every time. One thing that blew my mind with this book was how good his eyesight must be. Yeah. Because he would often, when he's playing someone, he said they were going to lose this next shot. I could see it in their eyes. Yeah, right. And you think, how? That's actually, a, that's really a distance away yeah. from each other. The psychology of it, though, it's amazing, yeah. the psychology. That's what sets world-class players apart. It's not just the skill of the game. and It's knowing when to play what shot, reading the player, like mm. you said right at the beginning, knowing if they're going into a cramp, how to take advantage of that cramp and make it worse for the other player. There's so many things to yeah, consider. There is. Or if, like, psychologically, you can see that they're suddenly thinking they might not win. And yes. so you have to act more confident to make them believe that you think you will because that will mentally break them same as snooker (laughs) (laughs) the only sport i know anything about (laughs) it must just be all sports if it's one person on one person there is an element of mental tennis (laughs) as we say you know actually seeing when somebody's breaking mentally or when they think the goal's in sight that can sometimes bring someone down when they see the goals in sight and they might make it that can often make them lose focus it's amazing. Oh, you see it when people run in athletics. Mm. You can see it when people are sprinting and they're ahead. Those last couple of steps, you can see they know they yeah. know they're winning, and then they, they kind down. of relax. And so then somebody <gasps> just overtakes yeah. them right at the last yeah. second. And sometimes it's the competition that actually drives people on. So that person's faster because they need to beat that person. Yeah. 
There's so much psychology in sports. Yeah. So much. Yeah, See, now is. they have sports psychologists, don't they? So they yeah. actually have people working with these. Yes. They didn't have it in the mm-hmm. 80s, in the times we're reading about. Mm-hmm. They didn't have that. Pete Sampras, who he probably has played nemesis, more than anybody yeah. else ever. Oh, I love it when they're both out at the same restaurant yeah. and Pete goes and gets his car from the valet first. Oh, yeah. And then Andre Agassi comes out afterwards and he says to the valet, how much did Pete Sampras tip you? And the valet kind of didn't really want to tell him. But he said that Pete Sampras, who is worth millions, millions. like multi-millions at this point, Pete Sampras tipped the valet one dollar, but he actually said when he handed that dollar over, he says, "Make sure this goes to the person who actually brought the car around." Shocking! Wow. Writing that in the book is the worst thing he could have possibly said about Pete Sampras. They're never going to be friends, yeah. but luckily they never have to play each other again. Yeah. The other part of it was when he becomes world number one. He says it doesn't mean so much because he knows Pete Sampras is better because he is better. He's got a better serve. He's just a better player. Then Pete Sampras retires because he knows it's time for him to give up his game. Andre Agassi keeps going forward. And he actually said when Pete Sampras retired, it made him really sad because Agassi is like, I'm the last one from my generation standing. We're going to fight. And even Gil says to Agassi at that point, come on, it's time to give up. It's weird for somebody who hates tennis and for somebody who had such a hard time with it. Oh, he said he didn't want to make the choice to retire. He only retired when he knew he couldn't play tennis any longer. So basically when his body was so entirely broken, he couldn't play another. And that's what happened. He gave up when his body told him that he couldn't play tennis anymore. So no regrets. And luckily he'd always channeled all of his money and time and enthusiasm into opening a big school. So he has something to focus on. Plus, he's got a wife and kids, and he's pretty happy. Yeah, I just think the pairing of Agassi and Steffi Graf, it just seems so perfect. She's right. She understands. They just seem very happy together. I think it's the best possible outcome for either of them, actually, even though if their families can't get together, because when Steffi's dad met Andre's dad, they ripped their shirts off and squared up to each other. I think they were kind of was a mirror image of each other meeting. That's so funny. So other than family barbecues, (laughs) I think Andre and Steffi Graf have a really nice life. It's a happy ending. Yeah, good. Well... Story so far, anyway. We'll keep an eye on Hey, them. match, set, love. Ooh! No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to put that in. That's rubbish. You have to. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thrift Shop Biography. We love making this podcast and we're absolutely thrilled that so many of you are already listening. You could really help us out by leaving us a review somewhere, wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you could share us, tell your friends about us or drop some links on social media. We have a Facebook page called Thrift Shop Biography. So make sure you come over there to hear about the episodes first and what else we're up to. Okay, see you next week. And if you're new here, there are loads more episodes now to go and listen in the back catalogue. So make sure you go and enjoy them. Okay, thank you very much.